0: Ready? All right. <laughs> All right. Good afternoon, everyone. All right, so first things first. I I wanted to take a minute just to clarify a misinterpretation that happened during our Q&A yesterday. You know, we were asking the question, somebody had asked me the question about the CFTR channel being bidirectional, and I said no. I thought that that question was asking if that channel was bidirectional within the cell of that same organ, like potassium can be I didn't realize it. It wasn't until I was on my way down to my office, I was like, oh, that's what they meant. And then one of your classmates sent me a nice email um, confirming my own oh moment. So, so the channel will only be unidirectional in a particular organ. So in the lung, in the pancreas, in the GI tract, in the you know, reproductive tract. CFTR will secrete chloride into the apical membrane. However, it is bidirectional, which is what I'm coming to understand what was meant by the question, in that in the sweat gland, it will reabsorb chloride out of the duct. Okay? So I just wanted to clarify that before we moved on. All right. So yesterday we left off with gas transport. We're so just going to finish that up and then have some fun with tonicity and osmolarity. All right, so we did this question yesterday, but we didn't get a chance to go through it because I didn't get through this. So if you can click in again, and then we can compare to what we get after we finish the session. All right. <clears throat> so at an altitude, there's less partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere because of which one of the following? Let's see what you've got here. All right. Okay, I think it was higher than it was yesterday. So we'll see. All right, so there's several different laws when we're talking about gas transport. The first one we're going to look at today ga- is Dalton's Law where the total pressure of a mixture of gases is due to the sum of the pressure of each of the individual gases. And of course, the percentage of a gas in the mixture is gonna be used to determine its contribution. So when we look at our total barometric pressure, which is about 760 millimeters of mercury, we're gonna look at the sum of all the individual gases that are gonna make up this total barometric pressure. So we know in the the air, we have about 21% oxygen, 78% nitrogen, and 1% argon. And so with that, our fractional concentration, let's say, of oxygen, is going to be 0.21, or 21%. So to find out how much oxygen contributes to the total amount of the barometric pressure, you would take your fraction, your concentration fraction, 0.21 0.21 and multiply it by the total barometric pressure, and you will see that 160 millimolars of mercury um, contributes of oxygen contributes to the total 760 millimeters of mercury barometric pressure. That will then denote what's called the partial pressure of oxygen. It's the part of pressure of the dry air that's made up by a particular gas. And of course, partial pressure of gas is associated with just the freely dissolved gas in solution. And it's always, again, going to flow down its pressure gradient, moving from an area of high partial pressure to an area of low partial pressure. So here are your components of air in dry air. You've got 78% of nitrogen forming your um, barometric pressure of 760. Oxygen is 21%. Argon is about 1% carbon dioxide, very, very little, and water, none. That's when we're looking at dry air. But when we're looking in, in, in humidified air, such as that in the trachea, you'll notice that the partial pressures tend to drop a little bit. Okay, They tend to drop slightly, and that's because at this point, you're going to have to take into account partial pressure from water vapor. Okay? So when you're looking at exam questions, just be mindful if it's telling you dehumidified air or humidified air, as the partial pressures will change slightly due to that. So here again, you'll see 78% of the total barometric pressure is nitrogen, and when you do the math, 0.78 times 760, you'll see that. Of the 760, 592.8 millimeters of mercury is nitrogen, 160 oxygen, and about 8 for argon. So... Well, what happens when we go up in altitude? So does my fractional concentration of oxygen change if I go up in altitude? Should my fractional concentration of oxygen change? No. It's always going to be 21%. But as you climb in altitude, what changes is your barometric pressure. It drops as you go up, the higher you go. But if our fractional concentration of oxygen stays the same, but our barometric pressure drops, well, when you do the multiplication, you will also find that your partial pressure will also drop as you go up in altitude. So that's Dalton's law. Now we look at Henry's law. And Henry's law is the amount of gas that will dissolve in a liquid. And it takes into account two things. The partial pressure of the gas in question and the gas's solubility coefficient, its ability to be soluble in that aqueous phase. And so this is the equation you would use. The dissolved gas will be equal to the solubility coefficient of that gas multiplied by the partial pressure of that gas. So here it is. We've got the partial pressure of oxygen. 159 millimeters of mercury, no water. So you know right here we're talking about dehumidified air. But once you start to submerge your gas into this liquid, now that changes because you're now looking at a humidified air. So you have to be very mindful if your gas is in humidified air or dehumidified air. So in this case, our gas is being submerged in humidified air So our partial pressure of oxygen is now 149 millimeters of mercury. And we know that to find out how much gas gets dissolved, we need to know its partial pressure and the solubility coefficient. So we know our partial pressure is 149 millimeters of mercury multiplied by the solubility coefficient, which is going to be given if you need to use it. And it's 0.0013 millimolars per millimeters of mercury. Okay? And so, when you do the math and multiply those two values together, you will find that the amount of dissolved gas is 0.194 millimolars of oxygen. Now, here we are being told, we are being asked actually, how to, dis- to find out how much oxygen is dissolved in our liquid in our liquid phases, but it's constant dehumidified airflow. So there's no contribution from the water vapor. So we know that we do not have to take into account the water vapor amount. So our partial pressure of oxygen will remain at the normal 159 millimeters of mercury. Now, we know, again, to find out how much oxygen gets dissolved in the liquid phase, you multiply your partial pressure by the solubility coefficient. And we know the solubility coefficient of water is 0.03 mils per deciliter millimeters of mercury. That of oil is 0.134 milliliters deciliters per millimeters of mercury. And when you do the math, you'll find that 21.3 milliliters per deciliter of oxygen is in the oil versus only 0.48 of oxygen in the oil. There's a huge difference, huge gradient between the two. But it doesn't matter. Because one thing that you'll note is that when your gas is dissolved in two separate liquid phases, there is no movement between the the, the phases. So there will be no movement of gas from the water to the oil or oil to the water. If you want to increase the amount of oxygen that is dissolved in a particular phase, then you'll have to increase the partial pressure of the oxygen. All right, so now... Let's see what you got for this one. I think 100%. I think we can get 100% on this one. Pretty confident today. And don't mess with me. I know 1% of you is gonna press something wrong. Let's see if we can get 100. Can we get 100? All right, so At altitude, now that we've gone through it, the less partial pressure is changing because, well, will it affect our fractional concentration of oxygen? No, it will always be 21%. It doesn't matter. What will change is as you go up in altitude, what happens to our barometric pressure? It goes down. Oh, man. I know y'all are messing with me today. But yes, 98 of you got it. And I noticed that as we did the question, more and more of you got it. I think it was 72% yesterday, 86 today, and 98 today. So good job. All right. So this is just a summary of what we just talked about. Dalton's law is looking at the percentage of a gas and how much the sums of those individual gases to make up the whole. And then Henry's law looks at how dissolvable a gas is based on the oxygen partial pressure and the solubility coefficient. And as you go up, in altitude, your barometric pressure will drop. Your oxygen fractional concentration of oxygen will remain the same, which will then cause your partial pressure to drop as well. All right. So as we move on to tonicity and osmolarity. Now this one's fun. I like this one. So here again are your, your learning objectives. And one thing we're going to talk about today is going to be the difference between osmolarity and tonicity and how it's going to affect water movement and, um, into the cell or out of the cell. So we know water transport is entirely passive. It passes through the membrane or through water channels. Um, and, and the flux of it is going to be due to osmotic gradients. There's no linear kinetics, there's no saturation kinetics, it's just freely moving. And usually what happens is when you have concentration of solutes, the higher the solute concentration, the lower the water concentration. And so because water can move across your semi-permeable membrane, and it will do so, water is going to move from an area of low solute concentration to an area of high solute concentration until it reaches equilibrium. So if we look at this cell, you can see that water is going to flow freely across the membrane, and it's going to move from an area of low solute concentration to an area of high solute concentration. So when you see this, this means your water concentration is high because your solute concentration is low. And your water concentration is going to be lower because you have a higher solute concentration. So you're going to get movement of water to an area of high solute concentration. And it can be done solely through the membrane or through an aquaporin. If the membrane is impermeable um, to sodium chloride, you will have a reflection coefficient of, if an ion is impermeable and cannot cross a membrane, the reflection coefficient would be 1. Good. So... The aquaporins can help. Now, there are two ways that water can be moved across a membrane. One is through osmosis, and the other is through hydrostatic driving forces. Now, your osmosis, your osmotic forces, are associated with the concentrations of all solutes in the fluid. And then, of course, depending on how much the concentration is, water is going to move to the area of high solute concentration. We will talk about hydrostatic driving forces, which is the effect of gravity on the movement of fluid, but you'll see that more when we're talking about capillaries in the cardiovascular and in the renal um, aspects. But this is going to help with solute transport across the vasculature. Here's another equation that you're going to have to be familiar with, is how to generate the osmotic pressure of a solution and you will look at the osmotic pressure in atmospheres, is the number of particles that can be dissociated by in a substance. So if we're looking at sodium chloride, it can dissociate into sodium and chloride, so your number n would be 2. You've got the gas constant, 0.082 liters per atmosphere over moles per Kelvin. We've got the temperature in Kelvin and the concentration in moles per liter. Now, if the exam question asks you for the effective osmotic pressure, then you would take into consideration the reflection coefficient. So which of the following characteristics would not affect the osmotic pressure exerted by a solute in solution? Alright. So which of the following characteristics will not affect osmotic pressure? Good. We just did the Vont Hoff. So the temperature is considered, concentration is considered, gas constant is considered, and the degree of dissociation of the solutes are considered. Okay, so we're looking at our N number. Alright. So when you get the movement of fluids, you get a flux. And, of course, the difference in the osmotic pressures between the two compartments will provide this driving force, and this would be your equation for flux, taking into account the hydraulic conductivity. Now, with osmosis, this is what's going to generate your flux, and that's going to be dependent on the solute particles. So you've got two solutions separated by a semi-permeable membrane, and there's going to be a difference in the solute concentration. And again, water will move to an area of high solute concentration from an area of low solute concentration. And of course, the permeability of the membrane is going to be important. And as water will easily cross, it will set up, it will, it will cross based on the concentration differences in each of the compartments. Now, substances, some are readily able to cross the membrane in, Some are not, and that's what's going to help set up this gradient to draw water. And again, based on its ability to cross this membrane, it has a reflection coefficient. And again, if the reflection coefficient is 1, then the solute is totally impermeable. It cannot cross the plasma membrane. So it's going to exert an osmotic pressure for water flow. It stays in one compartment. It can't move. So the more that remains behind, that's going to be a bigger pull for water to move. If a substance has a reflection coefficient of zero, then that solute is totally permeable. There's no osmotic pressure because it can go either way. So it won't stay in one area generating a pressure to draw water. And that's important as we look at osmolarity versus tonicity. Osmolarity is the total concentration of all the solutes in a compartment. And when you look at osmolarity, to generate osmolarity, you have to look at the number of particles in solution. That's your N. Multiplied by the concentration of your solution, taking into account an osmotic coefficient, which is usually 1. So osmolarity is all the substances, all the solutes, sodium, chloride, urea, sucrose, glycerol, whatever. Tonicity, on the other hand, is the concentration of only the osmotically active particles. These are impermeant ions that cannot cross the membrane. These are the solutes that are going to cause change in cell volume after long-term steady state, once everything is equilibrated. And it is tonicity that is going to describe the volume change of a cell, once everything has equilibrated and you're in a long-term steady state. So water essentially is going to move into the compartment that has the higher concentration of non-penetrating solutes. And it's tonicity that's going to determine the volume change of a cell at equilibrium. So penetrating solutes are those that can enter the cell. Glucose, urea, glycerol, Solutes are going to move between the compartments to help equilibrate both sides. Non-penetrating solutes are those that cannot enter the cell. If we're looking, and, and, and when we talk about into and out to, it's always in reference to the cell. Okay. So it cannot enter the cell. We're looking at sucrose, sodium, chloride, potassium. And so because they can't cross or enter the cell, they're impermeant ions water will move to where it is and help dilute that higher concentration. So the concentration of non-penetrating solutes in a solution and or in the cell is going to be what determines tonicity. The non-penetrating solutes determines the tonicity of the solution and will determine the change of volume after equilibration has occurred. Yes? That can pass through the membrane on its own. So passive diffusion, simple diffusion on its own, without help. Yes. Yes. Glucose is considered to be a penetrating, as is urea and glycerol. Yes. So a solution is isoosmotic if the total osmotic pressure of the solution is equal to that of the cell. So if you drop a cell in a beaker of solution, total osmotic pressure, both sides have exactly the same of, 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 solu- of solutes, then it's isoosmotic. If the solution has a greater osmotic pressure than the cell, then the solution is considered to be hyperosmotic. If the solution has less osmotic pressure than the cell, it is considered to be hypoosmotic. Now, osmolarity is gonna be very important when we're talking about cell movement because it's gonna impact the change in the cell, transient changes in cell volume. And you'll see that when we work our examples coming up. But a solution is isotonic if at equilibrium the non-penetrating solute concentrations on both sides of the cell membrane are the same, which means that there is going to be no movement of water between either side because both sides have an equal concentration of non-penetrating solutes, and the cell will neither swell or shrink. If the solution is hypertonic, that means you've got more non-penetrating solutes that are in the solution outside of the cell. If it's higher than the non-penetrating solution concentration inside the cell, then movement of water is going to be out of the cell into the solution, and it's going to cause the cell to shrink. If your, sol- if your solution is hypotonic, that means there's the non-penetrating solute con- concentration is greater inside the cell than it is outside in the solution, then movement of water is going to move into the cell, and the cell will eventually swell and then burst. Now, tonicity is going to be important for impacting the long-term steady state of the cell volume after everything has equilibrated. So here again, hypertonic solution. You're going to have more non-penetrating ion solutes outside of the cell, so it's going to draw water out of the cell, shrinking them. Hypotonic solution means that you have more non-penetrating solutes inside the cell, which is going to draw water in, and they will eventually swell and burst. And if you have an isotonic solution, that means both sides have equal amounts of non-penetrating solute, so there's no change in cell volume at all. All right. There was a question. Yes. No, not in this case. So it's not exactly zero. It's a little bit greater than zero, but it's still, it's still able to diffuse through the cell membrane, and it would not generate tonicity. Okay? And we're going to do some examples now, and we'll show you. Okay? All right. So here's your cell. Again, plasma cell, 300 milliosmoles. Okay? That's inside the cell. And remember, anytime we're discussing anything, it's always relative to inside the cell. So here we have a solution, 150 millimoles sodium chloride plus 50 millimoles of glycerol. What is the osmolarity of our solution? Who says 200? Who says 350? Well, what do we got to do first things first? What did we talk about yesterday? We had to go from moles to osmoles and so we had a look at how osmotically active particles are in this one substance so sodium chloride has two active particles so that becomes 300 glycerol does not dissociate so our osmolarity is 350 and in relation to the interior of the cell the solution would then be what what's the terminology you use hyper osmotic all right, so we've got a hyper osmotic solution. What is the tonicity of my solution? My tonicity would be isotonic because glycerol is possible, it's a penetrable solute. Sodium and chloride are non permeant solutes. So you look at the concentration of the non permeant solutes compared to the non permeant solutes inside the cell. And you'll see that the amounts are the same. So, osmolarity is important for transient movements of water. So you drop this 300 milliosmol cell in a 350 solute solution. What's going to happen with movement of water transiently based on the osmolarity? Water is going to move out, and you're going to see some cell shrinkage. But after equilibration, long-term steady, what is involved in maintaining the water cell volume over equilibration and long-term steady state? Tonicity. So what's going to happen to the cell volume after equilibration and long-term steady state? It's going to stay the same. Good. So you'll see the osmolarity is going to cause transient movement. It's going to cause the cell to shrink transiently. And after equilibration, the movement of glycerol happens and the movements of water happens. Once equilibration has occurred, because the tonicity are the same, both sides of the cell, the cells will return to the original cell volume and remain that size over time. All right, let's do another one. What is the osmolarity of this guy here? So we got our 300 cell. All right, so in words, what are we looking at? What would be the, the osmolarity in words? So our solution is hyperosmotic. We've got 300 sodium chloride plus the 300 of urea. So our total osmolarity is 600. What's my tonicity? Again, my tonicity is iso. We're just looking at urea as freely passable. So now what's going to happen? Transiently, due to the osmolarity, what's going to happen? Cell is going to? shrink transiently, but then over time and after equilibration and long-term steady state, because the tonicity is exactly the same, what would happen to my cell volume? It will stay the same again. Good. Alright. Getting the hang of it? Do this one. Yes. Yes. It's permeate. All Alright, what about this one? I hear iso, iso. What else do we got? Iso hypo. What else do we get? Iso hypo. All right. What is the osmolarity? Well, it's 300. 300, 300. So we're looking at an iso osmotic scenario solution. But tenicity urea is permeable, it's non permeant. So we're comparing a non permeant solute. Uh, we're looking at a permeate solute, sorry, excuse me, a permeate solute, and we're comparing it to non-permeate solutes in the cell. So there are no non permeant solutes in this solution. So the solution would be hypotonic. And if the solution is hypotonic, is there going to be any water movement transiently due to osmolarity? Would there be any transient movement of water? No, because it's isoosmotic. Good. But now over time, because you have the cell in a hypotonic solution, what's going to happen to water movement? It's going to go into the cell. And what's going to happen to the cell over time? Swell and burst. Good. Right? So after equilibration has happened, you should see movement in water into the cell. Cell will swell and lies. Next one. Take some time to work on this one. You guys can work, work on the next two. All right, do we have an answer for this one? I'm hearing hyper, hyper. Hyper, hyper. All right, so we've got 170 millimolars of sodium chloride, so that's 240, 340. 340 plus our 10 glycerol gives us a lovely round number of 350, so that is hyperosmotic. Now when we break down... Our permeant versus non-permeant ions, our non-permeant ions are 300 and so you're correct, hyper-hyper it is. What's going to happen, though, to my water movement? So transiently, what are we going to see? Cell shrinkage, and then after equilibration and long-term steady state, what are we still going to see? Cell shrinkage. Now, glycerol is going to try and move into equilibrate, but it will be very minimal because the draw of water to the non-permeant solutes is greater, so you're going to see the cell shrinking. Good. Next one. What are we thinking for this one? Hyper, hypo, hypo, hyper. All right, let's see what we got. So we've got 75 times 2 plus 10. We've got a hypoosmotic solution. And what's my tonicity? Again, hypotonic. Good, I hear yeah. Like that. So now what's gonna happen? Transient movement, you should see. You're gonna see water going into the cell. And then after a long term steady state and equilibration, you will still see the cell swell, grow, and eventually burst. How are we on that? We good? You sure? Who's that? Yes. Uh, are the units the same for osmolarity and and to, Yes. So the units will stay the same. Yeah. Question. You're good now. All right. Good. Yes. So what's the difference between osmosis and tonicity? What's the difference between osmolarity and tonicity? Osmolarity incorporates everything. Tonicity is just non-permeant. Yeah? All right, good. All right, well, since you all think you got this, let's go on. You had a question on the last one. Okay, this one. Yes, it's going to. So, because your glycerol is in the solution, glycerol is going to move in as well to try and equilibrate. It will eventually. Um, it's what it's doing is it's drawing the water in. You would account for some of it after steady state, but it's so minimal compared to the amount of water that gets drawn that it's the amount of water that gets pulled in due to the non-permeant solutes that's going to cause that large effect. Yes. All right. Yes. Yes. Because this is happening based on what you've dropped the cell into. Yeah. All right. Since you all got it, let's, let's see if you got it. Can anybody see a difference in what the examples I just gave you and these examples? Let's see. Who's observant? What's the osmolarity? I heard 580. What's the osmolarity? Who says 580? (laughs) Who says 290? It's 290. Because look at the units. They're already in milliosmoles for you. One thing you're going to note about physio, units, units, units. I have seen some USMLE questions where they give you the right numerical value of the question, but then they give you two different types of units. So if you're not sure about which unit, you get the number right, not knowing the units might bite you. So be sure to pay attention to your units. So if you noticed in the questions before, everything was in millimolars and you had to convert it to osmolarity. But here, it's already given milliosmoles for you. So now we're looking at inside the cell the icf versus the ecf so what's what are we looking at what's the osmolarity between the two it's going to be isoosmotic and what about tonicity again it's going to be isotonic they have they both have the same amount of non-permeant solutes so if i were to ask you on the exam what would the movement, what would be the cell volume change after equilibrium? No change in cell volume. Okay. So that's what you would expect to see. Okay. Because the isotonicity, there would be no change in cell volume. What about this one? So what do we have for osmolarity? Osmolarity, we have hypoosmotic and in tonicity, hypotonicity. So if I were to say to you what would happen after equilibration, cell would swell. Okay? Good. Be mindful of the terminology in the exam. If they just said, tell me what happens to the cell, then you'll have to talk about the transient movements and, and after equilibration. But if it says, what happens to the cell after equilibration or what happens to the cell at long-term steady state, then you just jump to the very end and base your answer off of tenacity. Okay. Next one. Everything's always relative to the cell. Yes. Yeah. So it will always be relative to inside the cell, which in this case is your IC. Yeah. All right, so what do we have? What's my osmolarity? Hyperosmotic and my tonicity? Hypertonic as well. So what's going to happen after equilibration? You're going to see s- cell shrinking. Good. Yes. Well, this is, in, this is your cell, ICF, and this is your ECF, outside your cell. So we're looking at what happens if you were to take your cell in comparison to what would be outside of it. Okay? And so your tonicity is your outside of your cell, so 390 right, versus 290. So this is hypertonic. And because it's already in milliosmoles, the dissociation of the particles have already been done for you. Whereas in the original set of examples I'd given you, you had to convert from millimolars into milliosmoles. This is already done for you. So you're just really comparing the numbers here. Yeah? All right. Yes? So we're looking at the water. Okay, so that's a good question. I keep forgetting to talk about that. So we are looking, when we're talking about being normal versus low, we're looking at it relative to, okay, we've got an isoosmotic or an isotonic amount in the cell, so you should have normal levels of water. But we're looking at this comparatively. We have more solute here, so if you have higher levels of solute, you should expect to have how much water concentration relative to that? Low. So you have a high concentration of solutes, you should see low water. right? So basically what they're just saying is they're comparing the water based on the amount of solutes in the cell. Yes, so into the cell, out of the cell. That's all you basically need to know. All right, so what's on, what's going on with this one? Example nine, what's happening here? What? <laughs> Osmolarity, what do we have? Hyperosmolarity and tonicity, what do we have? so. Good. So now if I said to you, What happens to the cell after equilibration occurs? No cell volume. But if I said, tell me what happens to the cell, what would you tell me? Transient shrinkage then returns to normal cell volume. Good. So you have to pay attention to the wording of your stem. If it just says, tell me what happens to the cell, they'll want you to talk about the transient movements into the final equilibrated state. If it just asks for the equilibrated state, you just say no volume change. This one. What are we thinking? All right, so we're looking at osmolarity, it's the same. What about my tonicity? Good. So, isoosmotic, we've got all the solutes equaling 290, but when we look at our non permeant solutes, only 240 is in the ECF versus 290 in my ICF. So, we're looking at a hypotonic solution. So, what's going to happen to my cell after equilibration? It's going to swell. Okay, good. Last one. All right. So osmolarity-wise, what do we got? Hyperosmotic and tonicity. What do we have? So we have a hyperosmotic solution, but it's hypotonic. So tell me about this cell. What's going to happen? It's going to shrink and then swell to burst after equilibration. Tell me what the cell long-term steady state, would just swell and burst. So be mindful of how it's asked. If it's just tell me everything, you'd say shrink to, to swell, and then if I ask just for the equilibration portion, the cell would swell. Good. Seems like you got it. So again, if you have an isotonic solution, you should see no cell volume change after equilibration. If you have a hypotonic solution, you are going to be allowing water to move into the cell. The cell will eventually swell and lies. And if you have a hypertonic solution, the water is going to move out of the cell into the solution, and the cell will shrink. And so these are supposedly very true rules, and they do work. If you have a hypoosmotic solution, they are also hypotonic. If you have an isoosmotic solution, it could be isotonic or hypotonic. And a hyperosmotic solution can be all three with regards to tonicity. So remember, tonicity, non-permeant solutes only. Osmolarity, everything is taken into consideration. And so, okay, we're doing all of this, and you're probably thinking, okay, so what? Well, it gets to be very important when, when you're looking at IV fluid therapy. So. When you get into the hospital and you have to determine which type of saline to use, you have a patient, a burn victim, dehydrated patient, and you've got to know which salines you want to use. And by administering a particular percentage, will that burst their cell? Will that shrink their cell? Will there be no cell change? It's very important for you to have an idea as to how that would work. And here is a very basic IV fluid list. Um, do you have it? You have it? Yeah, okay, good. And so this is just, you don't have to memorize all of it, but just be, just understand that 5% dextrose is isotonic. So if I ask a question about 1% dextrose, what would that be? Hypotonic, right? 10% dextrose is hypertonic. Normalized saline is isotonic. Anything below 0.9 is hypo. Anything above that is hyper. So just give you an idea of what percentages of these fluids, what they would do or be considered with regards to your cell. And then if you want a better explanation as to when to use it and when not to use it and how it's used, this will give you a, a, a better idea of it. Okay. So with water movements and capillaries, now our capillaries are surrounded by endothelial cells, which will separate them from the interstitium. And, of course, movement across the epithelial cells can be transcellular across the cell itself or paracellularly between the cells. And, again, that's determined by how tight or leaky the, uh, the junctions between the cells are. All right, so let's see what you've got. Give you a couple more seconds to click in your answer. All right. So tell me in numbers, tell me in numbers, what is the osmolarity of the solution? (laughs) I hear a lot, yes. But what is it in numbers? All right. And so what is that relative to our cell? Hyperosmotic. So we've got to break down. Because it's in millimolars, we've got to break it down. So 280 sodium chloride. And our calcium chloride has three particles. So we have to break it to 60. So our total osmolarity is 340. Tonicity, what's our tonicity? 340. Why do we know that our tonicity is 340. I also gave you reflection coefficients. So I've told you that your sodium chloride and your calcium chloride, they're non-permeant. Okay? So when you see the reflection coefficients, that can also guide you and give you an idea as to what can move across the membrane. Okay? All right. So, we talked about the movement of water. So, we talked about the movement of water via osmosis and by hydrostatic driving forces. Osmolarity, total concentration of all particles in the solution. Tonicity only looks at the non permeant ions, and that is going to describe your volume cell change after equilibrium, whereas, your osmolarity will discuss transient changes on its way to equilibrium. And if equilibrium, the cell volume has not changed, you're in an isotonic solution. If the cell is shrinking, you're in a hypertonic solution. And if the cell is swelling and about to burst, then you're looking at a hypotonic solution. And that is it. Have a wonderful weekend. I shall see you on Monday.